Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm and the moderator for today's discussion. The topic today is business immigration in the era of compliance and investigations. Uh, today is we're going to talk about the part one on public access files. I'm delighted and honored to have two of my very bright, sharp, knowledgeable attorneys, Alyssa Klein and Korzad Mehta, who will have the discussion so that you will hear all three of us sharing some updates with you on what's going on. Um, as you are no doubt aware, the Trump administration is skeptical of the use of foreign national workers, particularly H-1Bs and L-1s and others, by U.S. employers. This is in spite of the mountains of evidence which clearly would show that much of both immigration, that both immigration and immigrants, uh, particularly technology in the tech area, uh, really benefit the U.S. economy, create more jobs, start new companies like many of you on the phone, our entrepreneurs, visionaries, business leaders, and that we really don't have sufficient qualified U.S. workers who can do the job um, for growing our economy. But in spite of that, we're seeing where there's sort of this almost singular attack against many of you all as business owners and companies. Since compliance is now becoming the major focus, we thought this topic and discussion would be extremely timely and valuable for most of you. Investigations are continuing to increase. Uh, and as most of you on this call are employing foreign national workers, you need to act diligently and ensure that you are following all of the rules and regulations in order to avoid penalties, which can be very severe, both on you individually and on your business. So as I discussed earlier, we start this series with part one dealing with public access files. We really discuss it in detail because many, many employers who are doing H-1Bs regularly are not following all the rules, dotting the I's, crossing the T's in terms of maintaining their PAFs or public access files. In part two, we will look at I-9 compliance issues. And in part three, we will examine wage and other issues so that you can be prepared, God forbid, that you get that knock from a Department of Labor investigator or anybody else, an FTNS agent or what have you. So, Korzad, if I can start with you. Generally, when and how must an employer create or establish the public access file? So, you know, just backing up a little bit before I answer your question, labor, you know, let's like just briefly mention what a labor condition application is. Now, a labor condition application or an LCA uh, f uh, electronically filed typically on ETA uh, form 9035 um, is the physical manifestation of four attestations that an employer must make um, to the Department of Labor before they file a labor uh, a um, H-1B petition uh, or a H-1B1 petition or an E3 petition with the USCIS. Uh, the four attestations are just, you know, quickly talking about them, uh, the fact that notice of the uh, job opportunity that the H-1B is going to be filed for, or, you know, I'm going to talk, I'm going to say H-1B, but, you know, it, it's equal force for H-1B1 and E3, uh, but that the that notice was placed about the filing, 
that the wages and working conditions offered to the foreign worker who's going to be on H-1B are no better that, or worse than those offered to U.S. workers, um, that the um, that the uh, uh, employer uh, it will pay the higher of the actual or uh, prevailing wage mm-hmm. uh, for the uh, area of intended uh, employment, employment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fourth one would be where uh, you know that if you know if there's a uh, dependency. dependency or issue that that's been you know taken care of mm-hmm. willful violator and thing like that. Mm-hmm. Um, now. Though the form itself is a is the physical um, manifestation of those four attestations, it's supported by actual documentation, and that's what goes into the public access file. Mm-hmm. Uh, the public access file must be created for, to support the LCA that's filed in connection with any H-1B, H-1B1, or E-3 petition. Um, it must be um, completed and made available for public ex- inspection within one day of filing the LCA. So if you submit it online, 99.9% of LCAs, I would say even 100% are done online through the iSearch system. PAF, public access file, must be assembled and maintained starting within a day of that happening. Um the employer has some retention requirements when it comes to the public access file. They must keep it for the um, for uh, for a year beyond the expiration of the LCA, or a year from when the LCA has been withdrawn in an, in a situation where the um, employment uh, is terminated. Now, this file, this public access file, must be made available to any potentially interested or affected parties, including representatives from the U.S. Department of Labor who randomly audit these files from time to time. Okay. So so when we are able to, we at the Murthy Law Firm, when we get the call from the employer or company saying, hey, I got this call, can we talk to the investigator? We are often able to negotiate a few days or a few weeks, whatever, say, you know, depending on if somebody's if owners are traveling, what have you. But from what you've just said, and people need to really appreciate and understand this, is that the Department of Labor investigator or the FDNS agent does not need to give the employer or the company additional time to prepare the files because under the law, the public access file must be made publicly available for inspection within one day, as Corza just pointed out, one day of the filing of the LCA. So when we're able to get that extra time, we're really trying to finagle something that is really not required by the agent. Yeah, being being very, very stark um, with everyone, the public access file is supposed to be there, period. And mm-hmm. an officer should be able to just walk in and open up a drawer and see all of them. They should already be there. Uh, asking for extra time is more from a standpoint of just convenience and, you know, you know travel, legal, I'm the not there, down, the HR person's right, not there, right. what have you. Um, but, you know, those 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 documents have to be there and available. Got it. So talking about the documents, Alyssa, if I can come to you, right now, what, I- what actually goes into this public access file? Right. Well, it's interesting because we're talking about having it available within the first day of filing. Yeah. But, you know, the primary, you know, what's the first document you think keeping in there is the certified LCA. Right. And we all know with the ICERT system, you don't have a certified LCA mm-hmm. in one day. You have it in about seven days. Okay. So you still need to go ahead and put a copy of that in-process LCA in the public access file. Once it is certified, sign it put that signed certif- certified LCA in the file once it's done. Okay, mm-hmm. So that's one little deviation that we do see from that, being able to complete it in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> another uh, item to to make sure that you have in there is the evidence of the, the wage rate. Okay, um, And, you know, if you have an LCA for one employee and you've listed a single rate of pay, that 
should be sufficient to indicate what they're getting paid. However, some employers may have a range of salaries on the LCA or an LCA maybe for multiple H-1B employees, okay? Um, it, it really doesn't hurt in this case, in, in any of these cases, to go ahead and have an additional signed statement, a specific statement which says what the actual wage that will be paid to that under that LCA is going to be. Okay, so in terms of explaining how the wage is actually determined, how can the employer do that, Corzat? Yeah, I mean, the, the wage um, is kind of the one of the major parts of this uh, labor condition application attestation. I mean, as I said when I started speaking, the f one of those four attestations is the requirement that the employer pay the higher of the actual or um, prevailing wage for in the area of intended employment. That's known as the, as the required wage. Um, you know, the employer within the public access file must show how they came to the, the wage that they are offering for the uh, proffered employment. Uh, the, the public access file has to include a complete and unambiguous explanation of how that position was set uh, and, and provide documentary evidence of, uh, in the form of a memorandum typically, kind of outlining the system and the factors and the, and the evaluative criteria that went into determining that wage. Uh, so most people, employers just tend to do that in their mind. It's like you look at someone and you say, oh, this person has 10 years experience. This person is smart. This person. But basically all of those things that are kind of in your mind that many of us do intuitively or sort of in quasi in your head without written, you now what Korzad is saying is basically need to say based on years of experience, education, GPA, uh, knowledge and specific skills, software, hardware, knowledge, whatever it is, just you need to sp spell it in Braille. you got to spell it out and lay it out. Yeah. Um, that's what the wage mm -hmm. memorandum should ideally do. So if an officer or a person from the public or whoever is inspecting this file wants to, you know, kind of be curious about, well, you know, you're paying this person X, Y, Z or one, two, three amount of money. Uh, you know, how, how did you determine that? They're able to kind of look at your wage memorandum and have a flow chart. And that's just, you know, we're talking, you know, retrospectively. The memorandum should ideally also speak prospectively, explain mm -hmm. how future wages, raises will be determined, have a set process for providing employee reviews on a s annual or semi-annual basis, kind of spell out a little bit of the corporate policy when it mm -hmm. comes to determining wage. Um, Anytime a pay raise is given, the public access file has to be updated with that information. You probably want to tweak the um, the uh, public access file, or sorry, the wage memorandum a little bit just to mm -hmm. just to um, explain that. Definitely want to. The public access the, file is a living document. Absolutely. There are certain mm -hmm. things that are just going to have to be updated as you move along in this life cycle. Yeah, I mean, it'll gather a little bit of dust, mm -hmm. but it's not going to gather that much dust because you know, ideally, our, I'm sure the folks who are listening to this conference want their employee employees to remain with them for as long as possible because that give stability and, and benefits to their business. Mm -hmm. um, decreases in pay also have to be similarly documented, but you, know, you, you as employers might have to take an extra step if there's a decrease in pay to determine whether an amended petition is required, which may require the filing of an LCA and going through the H-1B process again, paying all those fees. That's something that you really want to evaluate appropriately because 
any deficiency in the required wage uh, can translate into fines and debarments and other penalties if the Department of Labor takes an active interest in reviewing what is, uh, you know what what the employer's practices were uh, you know as part of the public access file uh, and those are typically either complaint generated and there's you know <laughs> I'm sure employers can agree uh, nothing causes a complaint more than getting paid less than what you think you're supposed to be exactly. So kind of related to that topic is the prevailing wage determination. I think many people use the Department of Labor yeah. kind of threshold or other uh, online surveys. Right. Have you. The Department of Labor... Um you know, it maintains an online wage library on you know at uh, flcdatacenter.com, I believe, and a lot. And the uh, regulations do permit you to quote unquote determine the prevailing wage just by kind of going on there, going through their wizard, and printing it out. Another way that a um, an employer can determine a prevailing wage is a much more lengthier way, and that would be by filing an EDA 9141 prevailing wage request with the National Processing Center and then waiting two or three months for them to come back with what they determined the prevailing wage would be in that area of intended employment. That has some positives and drawbacks. The drawback I've already mentioned, it takes a long time to get that. Positive is, is that that prevailing wage is then considered what's known as a safe harbor. Uh, in an investigation situation, the uh, Department of Labor would not be able to challenge challenge the, the determination of the prevailing wage because it came directly from them versus, you know, if uh, the employer is in good faith utilizing the printout from the online wage library, then they could question, well, you know, is this the right job category? Is this the right level that was selected based on the education experience? Because the employer is then going to have to document how they picked which level of wage. And, and there are, can be significant differences from an entry level to a, a more senior level category, yeah. Okay, so next we go to the topic of notification. Uh, the public access file must include evidence that the notification requirements have also been met. If the position is subject to, for example, a collective bargaining agreement, which is relatively uncommon, especially in professional positions, then a copy of the notice must be provided to the collective bargaining representative However, more commonly, as we said, if there is no collective bargaining representative in that particular industry for that employer, then the employer is required to either post the, no a, post the notice at two conspicuous locations at the work site or B, provide electronic notification to all its employees at that work site who are in the same occupational classification. Right. So that's this is really important for the electronic posting. And I just want to start off by it's I don't think this is the most common method that people use. I think people do generally stick to the paper notification at, at the work sites and two locations um, with the uh, electronic notification. It's important to understand this, that the it's all employees at the work site in the occupational classification, not just the employer's employees. So if you have staff that is at a, another company's office and there are similarly employed workers, you know, you need to make sure all of those workers get that notice, even if they're not your employee. That can become very, very difficult to accomplish. So for that reason alone, electronic posting, I think, you know, is, is eliminated from a possibility there. And in third party. In third party uh, situations. Third party, yes, placement situations, yes. obviously. If it's internal, if it's an internal position, uh, you know, this can be accomplished by posting it, you know, on an intranet in a location where you normally would, would advertise a, 
vacancies or job announcements, that sort of thing. Um, you could, you know, individually email those specific workers in the occupational location at, at the work site as well um, and give them a link to where it's posted or just the single email with the, you know, the, the posting attached to it. Yeah, but this is one of those situations, I'm sure you agree, Alyssa, that, you know, the, the old ways are, you know, kind of like gold. And I mean, I know it seems yeah. kind of funny to get out the scotch tape or the tack to put it up yes. on a bulletin board in two conspicuous locations and then count down the days. But, you know, especially what happens when the end client says, I'm never going to agree or somebody says, I'm not going to do it. How do you deal with it? And I know that that's probably something that's being investigated and looked at. We we do talk to clients about that. We, you know, have consults both, you know, with, you know, our clients that we're working with as well as other people that maybe just have this as a question. And it's something you really have to talk to your attorney about because if you can't post, if you can't accomplish the posting, you can't file, you can't file it. Yeah. No, a notice, so. uh, the notice requirement is one of those, you know, four attestations that yeah. we talked about right at the start. It's sacrosanct. you, you mm -hmm. got to do it. So you have to figure out a way to good faith do it. Right. And and then how do you document it? Right. How do you document? It? Obviously, you know, as tried and true with the, you know, physical, you know, an email leave, leaves a nice paper trail mm -hmm. there. And, and that's an easy way to do it. But how do you document the, the physical posting? Well, um, if, if you have employers uh, with, you know, H-1B employees, E3, H-1B, one employees offsite, um, you know, you need to know where they were posted at the work site. Um, you need, I would, you know, want to have some sort of verification um, that it's gone gone up and when it comes down. Um, and, and then, you know, you need to be able to authenticate the dates that it went up for 10 consecutive days at those work locations. Uh, usually it's advisable to have this listed on the notice itself and then signed off on and dated by an employer representative and, and, and keep that in the file. Um, but again, if you can't get it posted, you you can't get it filed. Yeah, talk to your attorney, but yeah. generally speaking, no posting, no filing, because otherwise that would open employers up to very significant um, sanctions and penalties in case of an investigation. Well, that sounds really scary. So obviously, in addition, I know we've talked about this before, the foreign national worker should be provided with a copy of the LCA by you as the H-1B employer, and the public access file should actually have evidence that this, in fact, was done by you as the employer for the H-1B employee. Absolutely. Getting a sign-off or something acknowledging provision of the LCA should be a pretty important part of your public access file. Even though it's not necessarily clearly specified in the regulations, it is, in, it is you know, implied from there. Okay. And also we have the benefits memorandum that you as the employer must include in the public access file a memorandum which explains the benefits offered to all of the workers. So, you know, if it's like life insurance, uh, health insurance, vac paid vacation time, whatever, reimbursement for X or Y or travel, what have you. So you need to actually spell it. So, exam for example, as we said, if the health insurance is offered, time off, sick leave, all of this should actually be listed in that memo. And then the foreign national worker should typically be offered the exact same benefits as U.S. workers, which is what the investigator is double checking to make sure that you are not within quotes exploiting the H-1B foreign national worker and thereby, I guess, indirectly or directly reducing the wages, adversely affecting the wages and working conditions of U.S. workers, which is the whole reason and purpose why all of this, what, why all of this LCA stuff is done with Department of Labor, why the green card perm is done with the Department of Labor. It's all to ensure that the U.S. worker is protected. 
So what about the special, are there any special requirements in terms of public access yeah, files? Yeah, you know, I mean, we've been talking about the public access file in the context of, you know, a stable employment situation, a stable uh, corporate, um, you know, situation where the, uh, where, the co- where the entity is, you know, m- keeping its corporate identity and things like that. But, you know, things change. Mergers and acquisitions happen. Restructurings happen. Uh, and sometimes those, and oftentimes those happen with uh, companies that have a uh, foreign national workforce or, or a number of uh, foreign nationals who are on the payroll. Uh, in, in those cases, it's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's common sometimes when these types of uh, corporate restructurings are happening to have immigration be an afterthought because there's so many other things that go into a merger acquisition or corporate restructuring. But I think it is, you know, of course, I'm biased. I'm an immigration lawyer. I think it is important to have an immigration lawyer at the table because these matters need to be handled as well. Um, with respect to you know what the public access file requires in the case of a corporate restructuring, uh, like a merger acquisition or something like that, companies should add to the public access file a sworn statement by the quote-unquote new company. So that could be either the acquiring company or the surviving company or, or what have you that, that comes from the corporate chain, uh, agreeing to assume all of the obligations and liabilities associated with the predecessor's filing of the LCA. So what that means is that the new entity is taking on everything. So if those public access files were not pristine and perfect, then down the line, if there's an investigation, it's the successor company that's going to be taking on any kind of liability for any violations or anything like that that happens. That's why sometimes, um, you know, this is a, more of a practice point than anything else, immigration lawyers would advise doing amendments in the case, even though it's not ne- ne- required or necessitated by the by the regulations or the statute, that, you know, perhaps just to kind of get away from any kind of uh, risk, uh, you know, or as a, just a general corporate risk aver- aversion uh, strategy to do am- amendments. But amendments can get expensive and they can also be complicated in terms of, uh, jo- you know, adjudication trends and things like that. So if we're going to, if, if that is going to happen, then like I said, a sworn statement assuming the obligations and liabilities associated with the LCA and the public access file are required to be in the public access file. Additionally, employer must add a list of all of the affected labor condition applications, the foreign, the uh, FEIN or federal employer identification number for the new or surviving entity, and an explanation of its wage system, very similar to a wage memorandum, how they set uh, wages and uh, other uh, and and uh, how they evaluate raises and things. So a lot of times when people say, oh, we had a successor, we had a merger, we had a whatever six months or a year ago and everybody just went on as if nothing happened. That's a problem. It's better to even if you catch it be- ideally before everything is done, uh, the eyes are before the final signatures are done on the, the the actual deal structure, the restructuring happening. That's when you want to talk to your immigration lawyer and set up and ensure that you update your public access files with all of the information, because you now have to go over and provide the new information, as Korzad explained, you know, and the new explanation if there's a difference in the wage system, the FEI, and all that good stuff. Because a lot of times we are contacted and other lawyers have said this routinely, law firms, after everything is done and now you're trying to go back and you obviously cannot and should not, you know, date the documents oh, no. as of that date. You date it now, preferably before there is an investigator knocking on your door, because that is much better because it shows that you're trying to follow the law and, you know, basically dotting your eyes, crossing your T's and doing everything properly before 
somebody gave you a heart. No. I think it's always better to take those remedial measures Absolutely. sooner better rather late than, than later. Never, yeah. Better late than never, yeah. ideally I, beforehand, but if not, whenever you realize it. Or if you're hiring, for example, the multi-law firm to look into and do a preliminary investigation, a preliminary review, what we call a file audit, uh, of sampling of files, which we do at a flat rate, I believe, rather than most law firms that charge purely hourly, because we realize how sensitive to costs and fees most employers, particularly small or mid-sized employers are, we can at least say, here, there's a trend. Here's what we're noticing. You haven't done A, B, C, and D. Here's what we need to do. Here's how to clean it up. And then your internal HR can clean it up. Some employers want you to look at every single case. Some want you to look at a special sampling. We can help with all of that. Okay, so Alyssa, uh, if we can just wrap up. What are the special issues for H-1 dependent employers and potential willful violators? What's the story? Right. So, you know, before we talk about what needs to go into the public access file, it's important to understand that when the LCA is being prepared, the employer has to identify affirmatively or negatively whether they are either or both uh, a, been found to be a willful violator of the program or if they're H-1B dependent. Um, H-1B dependency b basically means that you know a certain proportion of your workforce is made up of H-1Bs, and that H-1B population has reached a certain threshold, and you evaluate it based on the size of your company, okay? Um, but provided that you you do meet one of these two or both of these And I'm guessing categories. that most H-1B dependent employers understand and know of those thresholds right. specifically, which trigger the Now, when it comes to uh, these these employers, um, there are additional attestations that are required, and these are also spelled out on that LCA itself. And they have to do with recruitment of U.S. workers and not displacing any U.S. workers at the work locations um, by virtue of, of the, the sponsorship of the H-1B worker. Okay? So if the placement of an H-1B worker results in the layoff of a U.S. worker, that that would be considered displacement, okay? Mm -hmm. um, now, the recruitment... So the big thing that Trump kept making during his, I guess... Uh, like it's going a very around, big issue. Was, was, but but that was issue. with companies that were not H-1B dependent, like Disney. Um, right, but this would still be relevant if you are um, a IT consulting company and you were placing your workers at that other company's work location. And you, if you're H-1B dependent, your placement there cannot result in the, the layoff or displacement of a U.S. worker. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the employer at the location. It's anybody who's employing H-1B workers at that location. Okay, mm -hmm. And that, it gets very difficult to, to do because how easy is it for a third-party company to verify what's going on with another company's workforce? Um, so that's very hard for, say, a consulting company to satisfy that request. Um, but obviously, it's a little easier, you know, if, if it's internal within your own organization. Okay, so a company would have to—that's dependent, willful violator—would would have to make these attestations that they're not that their their H-1B sponsorship would not result in this. They also have to basically take good faith efforts to to recruit use indus industry-wide standard methods of of recruiting u.s workers for the position and quite frankly hire if they are equally or better qualified okay now the there is an exception to meeting these requirements and this is also something that's come up a lot um, which is how uh, an h-1b sponsored employee can be considered exempt for purposes of these displacement and recruitment requirements. Um, currently, there's two ways to 
classify an H-1B you know, worker as exempt. And that is either by rate of pay of at least 60000 annually, or if they have a master's degree or higher that's related to the offered position. Now, this can be a U.S. master's degree. It can also be a foreign degree, provided that the degree in and of itself is evaluated to be equivalent to a U.S. degree. Okay. U.S. master's. Yes, a U.S. master's degree. So if you're able to satisfy one of those two options, then you are not subject to these additional attestations. And that's what they're looking at changing that the because 60, there's, a lot of there's a lot of discussion about the $60,000. Making it to $130,000 mm -hmm. or hundred whatever. Yeah, I mean, most propo I mean, some proposed legislation on the Hill apparently is trying to raise the threshold for mm -hmm. where a... a um, where, if, uh, Only for this purpose, for or was exemption. it also for the purpose of base rate for any H-1B worker? No, 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 it didn't appear to be. I mean, you know, most proposed legislation is, you know, so amorphous and right. kind of fluid that it's hard to say. I mean, yesterday it might have included everyone, and then another draft right. today doesn't. But you do definitely see that sixty thousand number being bandied about, thrown around. Exactly, yeah. exactly, mm -hmm. and that's where that that's where the number comes from. Um, th but, you know, just to, to be clear, you know, you do have additional documentation requirements for these public access files if you are a dependent or a willful violator. Uh, whether exempt or whether not. Whether exempt or not, right? Um, now, if you are required to do the recruitment, things like that, you have to keep evidence of that in the public access file. Mm -hmm. um, for, you know, cases where you do have, an, uh, you know, you're using the LCA to sponsor someone who's exempt, you have to include a list of all of your H-1B exempt employees in that public access file. Okay. Well, I know I feel like we've touched the tip of the iceberg with respect to this topic, but because the number of investigations uh, is increasing, because of people getting stressed out, I know a lot of companies were very eager to participate in this conference call series that we did because we are seeing more and more the trend that is happening under the Trump administration of trying to find some kind of it's like the, the the what they say it's sort of not a joke but it's sort of used as a joke that if a cop follows you around two city blocks he or she will always be able to find give you a ticket for crossing an orange light or just when the light turned red etc so as an employer you absolutely want to make sure that you are doing everything in your power so that even when that cop is following you around in this case the DOL agent or the FDNS agent comes and knocks on your company's door, that you are able to say, here, here's my public access file. Here's what, you know, I listened to this wonderful seminar presentation by the brilliant Murthy Law Firm legal team. And now I know I need to provide, you know, the list, the LCA to my employee. I need to dot my I's, cross my T's, do all of the things that Alyssa, Corzad, and myself just discussed with you today. Um, Again, as we said, this is part one of a three-part series. Part one is really getting into the nitty-gritty and details of the public access files. Part two, we'll, we'll discuss the details of the I-9 compliance and issues relating to compliance of I-9s, which is, again, a big deal because it sounds like another very simple, easy form like the LCA, but it has so many traps for the unwary. And the third, part three, 
In part three, we will examine the wage and hour issues, which again are the big focus ultimately on which thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars worth of fines and penalties are imposed on employers for failing to comply with that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, hopefully you will never get that knock on the door. Hopefully you're doing all the things right. But God forbid you should get that knock on the door. You are welcome to contact us at law at murthy.com. Our, our email, just click on murthy.com, the contact, and we will have scheduled one of our attorneys to have a free five or 10 minute overview to see whether you want to do the smattering cases, whether you want to do, respond to a specific knock on the door by the Department of Labor investigator or the FDNS agent, or whether you just want to be proactive. As we said, a prevention is always cheaper than cure, and you will be so much better off trying to take care of your paperwork in advance rather than waiting till it's very late. I really hope that this discussion has not scared you, but made you feel more confident and comfortable that there is a finite amount of things that you as an employer needs to take care of. And by doing it correctly, you can sleep well at night knowing that you've done your part and that you have a fantastic legal team that cares about you and your business and your peace of mind and sanity to, so that you can continue to focus on what you do best, which is doing amazing work for your clients so that you can stay in business and be profitable. And we can be your attorneys to guide you and help you and mentor you through the process as these rules keep changing, as we have an administration under Trump that is clearly focused on going after H-1B employers and targeting us. And again, I know we try to keep this between 30 and 45 minutes, and we're right at 33 minutes right now. So with that, I thank you for joining us today. We look forward to continuing to help you and keep doing serious stuff and be careful with what you do so that we can guide you during the process. On behalf of Korzad Mehta, Alyssa Klein, myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to continuing to take great care of you. Thanks.